Whew. How uh, is that? Uh, everyone good? Everyone kind of relaxed? And did you did you do the exercise this week, or are you still skipping that part? Breathe in, breathe out. We're in a series right now where we're talking about the breath of God. And uh, friends, if I had a chance to meet you, my name's Joe, one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you here at a nine o'clock service. Uh, we're in week three of our series called The Breath of God, and, and we've been looking at um, really four strategic passages in Scripture that talk about God's breath and what's going on with that. Uh, the last two weeks, we've been spending time in the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. So we looked at Genesis, and we looked at the breath of God at creation, and how God formed uh, the first human out of the clay of the earth, and then breathed life into them. Last week, Alyssa shared out of the story of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones, and how God put all of this bone and flesh, and then breathed life into them. Today, we're going to jump to the New Testament. This week and next, we're going to spend some time in uh, the New Testament, and uh, today, we're going to look at a passage... Um, a scripture. It's a letter that Paul wrote to one of his students, uh, uh, Timothy, and, uh, and, and kind of spend some time looking at what it means for God's breath to be at work in scripture. And then next week, we're going to jump back to the gospels, and we're going to spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit. And specifically, this curious little story in John, uh, where Jesus breathes on his disciples, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, so just a reminder, in Hebrew, the word for breath is the same word for uh, wind and spirit. So as we move into the New Testament, the, the Greek is a little bit different, but uh, the same kind of similar, they would have been very familiar with the Hebrew and would have been familiar with this kind of idea that breath and wind and spirit, breath of God, wind of God, spirit of God, very similar things. And sometimes just context tells us what the difference. So keep that in mind as we jump into this passage. Today, we're going to look at a passage, a verse that if you've grown up in the Christian world at all, You've, you're probably familiar with. If you haven't, um, you'll be familiar with it by the end of today. But it's a passage in Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 3.16, and uh, it says this. We'll look at it briefly, and then we'll dig into it more deeply uh, with some of the context. It says in 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed. That God-breathed, that's what brings us to this passage, because we're looking at the breath of God. So here's one occurrence of talking about the breath of God. So all scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay. I want to just pause for a second. Um, I want us to recognize something. Today, we are going to talk about how scripture is God-breathed and what it's useful for. We're going to talk about that. Before we do, I want to say just a couple of things. So here's two things that I just want I, I got to share with you. Um, before we get into what, before we even get to this passage, you need to know this about me. First is this. I, uh, I love Scripture. I really do. Uh, I've studied it more than anything else I've ever studied. I still owe money for studying it, okay? I'm still paying someone for the opportunity to study scripture. In undergrad and then four, you know, three and a half more years in seminary, I've studied it more than anything. And even with all that I've studied it, and I'll just be honest with you, sometimes uh, because of how much I studied it, I don't like it as much. Um, you know, Things become academic and you kind of lose the attachment to it. But still, in all of that, I still love scripture. If you know me, you should know that. It's what we teach on all the time. It's, I love scripture. In fact, I was uh, going through some old journals, and this is a little embarrassing, but you know, whatever. I, I used to make these journals back in high school. Isn't that cool? It's cardboard and friends. Torn edges. The paper's all torn. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool and, you know, pretty creative. I did some designs on front. I was going through these old journals, and um, these 
journals, you know, they were from a time in my life where I was reading scripture on my own for really the first time. And I was looking through this and it's just, it's just verse after verse after verse that I was just journaling about. I was just writing scripture out, which by the way is a helpful thing to do. And it's just all of these things and I read them, I read them in this context even, even more so than when I read these same verses in the Bible, but because they're in this journal, they take on new meaning. Because I'm remembering, you know, what was going on in my spiritual life um, when I was reading through all of these passages. But there's even one here in Psalm 119, right on the front of the, right on the, front of the, the journal, I wrote this little verse, Psalm 119.11, and, and it simply says, uh, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you which was really kind of the heart of this journal. I've hidden, I've found in my life over all, of, over all, everything else that personally spending time with scripture, allowing scripture to live in my heart has been one of the biggest, has had the, one of the largest impacts on my life. And I say all of that to say simply, I love scripture. I encourage you to read scripture. It's one of our, uh, dare I say, requirements. Uh, it's one of our expectations for people who want to become a member, that you're spending regular time in scripture and prayer. It's just, it's part of the rhythm of our community together because it's work, because it works, because it's beneficial. Um, so all that to say, I love the Bible, but I hate how it's being used today. Do you know the phrase, no offense, but... When someone's like, no offense, but if someone says it to you, you're pretty sure like they're definitely going to offend you next. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what I feel like this similar phrase has become for me. Well, the Bible says, and if someone says that, I'm almost like immediately my guards go up and I'm like, okay, if someone's like, well, but the Bible says, what I'm really, what they're going to say to me, most likely, not always, is one, they probably don't actually care what the Bible says. Two, they definitely want to defend their position. Do you know what I'm saying? But the Bible says this. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Someone wants to uh, correct you, and uh, um, they sincerely, you know, maybe it's your view on politics or your view on science, or well, but the Bible says, and then if you stand your ground, I don't know if you've ever done this. I've done this. I'm a pastor. I have to do this. If you stand your ground, and you're like, well, I know the Bible says that, but over here, the Bible also says this, and I'm just trying to figure out, like, how it works. I'm just trying to figure it out, and then a lot of times, eventually down the conversation, they'll come back with you, and you're like, well, you're just an agent of Satan, and I'm like, that escalated quickly. Um, and uh, I'm, I, that ends the conversation at that point. But I'm thinking, well, the Bible says in Matthew 12 that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan. So I guess I'm in good company. And some of you are thinking, I've never been called an agent of Satan. And I don't know what to tell you. Try harder, I guess. Um, um, Jesus definitely was. Because here's what the Bible actually says. Here's what it says. Um, before we can look at 2 Timothy 3.16, we got to be familiar with another New Testament passage. So I want to start there. And it's very easy to remember. So you can write this in your phone, in your notes. You can write it down. It's very, if you're going to quote 2 Timothy 3.16 to me about how all Scripture is God-breathed, then you need to be familiar with 2 Peter 3.16. So 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 3.16, very easy to remember. Just Peter and Timothy, and they're the second one, and it's 3.16. And it simply says this. Here's 2 Peter 3.16. Peter is talking about Paul. Most likely talking about even Paul's letter to Timothy would be included in this conversation. And he says this of Paul. He says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. If you've ever read Paul, can I get an amen? 
Okay, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Sit with this for a second. Here's the thing about scripture. The Bible says that scripture can be distorted and misused. That's what the Bible says about scripture. Not just, and and more than that, the Bible also says that there are some things in the Bible, he's talking about Paul's letters, but but he says, but also the rest of scripture. So there's this, there's some things that are in this, this library of books, this collection of books that span thousands of years. There are some things in there that are hard to understand. And because they're hard to understand, that means they're complicated. And because they're complicated, it's entirely possible to read them, to quote them, to study them, and to still be wrong about it. It's just, that's what the Bible says about the Bible, okay? So it's entirely possible to misuse it. Um, it's talked about in, in one place as a, uh, as a sword, and uh, a double-edged sword, sharper than a double-edged sword. And it's true, like a sharp metal object can be used uh, to perform surgery on somebody, uh, can be used to chop up, you know, different ingredients and, and, and make a feast. It can also be used to stab someone in the back, all depending on who's what holding it. But we can agree, whether it's being used for good or for bad, that it's powerful. And so we've got to be careful with it. Now, um, this creates um, uh, an interesting problem. One of the things that we see in this story, in this particular passage, is not only is that complicated, not only can it be misused, but when it does, it can actually hurt people. And I would say that that's probably one of the best, one of the really good ways to know whether someone's in, in using Scripture in a healthy way is, is it hurting someone? Is the use of Scripture, is it grounded in hate? Is it grounded in uh, retaliation or to self-righteousness? Like, is it being used in a way that's hurtful? Because if it is, then it's probably not good. I'm not particularly interested in biblical interpretation that hurts people. That's me, based on this passage and others. So all that to say, just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's helpful. Things the Bible says can be taken and manipulated and misused. Uh, The Bible even says it. So this creates a new problem. We live in a world where um, many want crystal clear authority on what we should be doing with our lives. You know, we just, we want it to be crystal clear. We want it to be non-disputable. Here's the right thing. Here's the wrong thing. And for many, that's the Bible. Um, It's that authority. God said it. I believe it, and that's good enough for me. And that's nice, and that's comfortable, and I can, I can, I can be sure that, it, that, that I'm always right. If I, if I hold that view, I'm always right, and you're always wrong because I have a verse that backs me up. But the Bible says that's not how it works. So what do we do when we realize that Scripture itself claims that in the wrong hands and used with the wrong intention can cause harm? What authority are we left with? I'm going to suggest to you today that Scripture remains authoritative. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm not leaving that behind. But I don't think it's authoritative in isolation. It's not authoritative by itself. It's, it's only authoritative in the right context and when used for the right purposes. Uh, to be very clear, I think Scripture itself suggests that Scripture is useful within the boundaries that God has placed on it. And outside of those boundaries, Scripture stops being useful and can even become harmful. 
So the question is, what are those boundaries? Well, our passage today is going to explain that. Uh, so now we finally, we finally, 2 Peter 3.16, we can look at 2 Peter uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, so go to 2 Timothy. If you have your Bible with you, I'm, we're going to spend some time in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I encourage you to pull it out or pull it up on your smartphone. It'll be on the screen as well. We're going to start just with verse 1. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 9. I'm just going to give you the, the, the recap of what's happening. In verses 1 through 9 of 2 Timothy 3, Paul is talking about leaders, the type of leaders that misuse Scripture and distort it, false teachers. It's a prominent theme in the New Testament, false teachers. So he's talking about these leaders that are doing things that hurt people. And um, in summary, uh, uh, so the question becomes, how do we counter this? How do we counter these teachers that are misusing it? Um, If I can't just go back to Scripture, because we're both quoting Scripture, so how do we know what's right and what to trust? Paul will answer that in the next verse. So jump to verse 10. He says this about it. He says, you... Speaking to Timothy, his student, his disciple, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purposes, faith, patience, love, endurance, pers- persecution, suffering, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Paul says this He says, Don't trust those other teachers, trust me. And here's why. You know me. He says, he doesn't say, well, because the Bible says I'm Paul the Apostle. He says, no, you know my life. You know my purpose, which is another way of saying, you know my intentions here. You know what I've been trying to accomplish in the name of God. Uh, You know my faith. You know how patient I am with people. He's talking about the fruits of the Spirit here. He's like, you know that the Holy Spirit's at work in my life because of my love and my faith and my patience and and how I haven't given up even when things got hard. He says, you know just how much I've suffered because of this, which is another way of saying, friends, Paul's like, I'm not benefiting from this. The way that I'm teaching Scripture, the way that I'm teaching people, it is not making me rich. In fact, Paul's like, my life is worse off because of what I teach, which is an interesting way to, you know, when someone's teaching Scripture or teaching you anything, ask the question, how much are they benefiting from it? Is their life better off because of the message that they proclaim? Name it and claim it and give us the money. I need this jet. It helps me accomplish my ministry better. We do hope to get one someday, by the way. So just planting that seed of faith in you all. But he says, no, my life isn't comfortable because of this. I'm in all kinds of trouble. I'm in prison most of the time. I get persecuted. Like, I am not, this is, I am not teaching this for selfish reasons. Paul says, you can trust me over those other teachers because you know me and you know what I stand for. You know my story. You know my character. And this isn't the first time Paul lists out his resume or his qualifications, over and over again in his letters. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, he's talking about, he's like, I'm a Pharisee, the Pharisees, this is all I've done, you know, this is how I experienced Jesus. He's constantly sharing his testimony, he's constantly sharing his character. He's talking about how uh, the people, you know, you know me. You know who I am, you know what I'm about. It's as if Paul knew that the character of someone teaching the Bible was as important as the Bible passage they were teaching on. My mentor uh, and our old senior pastor, um, uh, Paul Reisler, he's uh, at the church where we launched out of in Athens, and he, he uh, taught me most of what I know about um, uh, preaching with my time with him. I, I went to a workshop recently where he was teaching on 
preaching. He was talking about how to preach, and he used this analogy of a stew, you know, like a soup, a stew. He says there's all kinds of a sermon, a, a teaching is like this stew, and you've got meat and vegetables and spices, and these are the things that make up a sermon, you know, like you've got your biblical text and your context and your application, all this sort of stuff. But then he said something I thought was really profound. He says, but the stock, the broth that this teaching sits in is your character. And he says, I don't care how good of ingredients you have in the stew. If you've ever tasted or smelled stock that's gone bad, that's spoiled, it'll, friends, it's going to ruin the rest of the soup. It's the character that pulls it all together. So first, Paul establishes authority, not just in Scripture, but in the people who are using Scripture. Um, Hebrew, uh, he talks about that idea of a sword, and depending on how you you know, you hold it, how you use it, it can be, it can be dangerous. Uh, but Paul is super clear here. The authority is rooted in, in partly the person who's doing the teaching. Jump to verse 14. He says this as much. He says, pretty much says it. He says, but as for you, once again, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because the Bible said so? No, because you know those from whom you learned it. There's this relationship. You know who they are, you know where they came from. You know what they were about. There's this trust, this relationship, this like authority that came because I was, it was passed down from somebody who I know is following Jesus, and so I can trust it. And then he goes on to explain that it wasn't just him. It was other people. Verse 15, he says, And, now from, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. He says from infancy he was taught the Scripture. In other words, Timothy didn't come to faith later in life. He was raised in the Scriptures. The Old Testament at this point, because the New Testament obviously is literally getting written as he talks about this, right? So they don't know that that's the New Testament yet. So he says he's raised in the Scriptures. And he even says earlier in this letter, Paul said this. He says, I am reminded of your, Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. In other words, it's like you got this from people that we know and trust, your, your family, your grandmother and your mother, they were credible teachers because their faith was sincere. And from the time you were born, Timothy, you were, you were taught what scripture said from these people with sincere faith. Sincere faith. So, so here's, here's where, uh, so where you get it from matters. So first, you have to have someone who is credible, a sincere teacher, um, and then people are taught the scriptures. For one purpose, Paul says the, what the purpose is in 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, uh, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Part of being a good teacher is knowing the purpose of the book that you're teaching on. If you want to learn how to make the best pastries that you've ever had, don't check out a book at the library on climate change. It's just not going to be useful, you know? If you want to learn how to market things online better, don't borrow your mom's cookbook because it's just like it's not, you're not going to be, it's not going to be helpful. If you want to learn advanced mathematics, then, you know, don't go to a pop-up book that's in your kid's room. That doesn't make any sense. Um, the right book for the right goal, that's no-brainer. And I think the Bible is similar. It was written for a purpose, a particular goal. And the purpose is to lead us to salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Old and New Testament. To lead us to salvation through Jesus Christ. If you were here with us uh, two weeks ago, you might remember 
or if you were following along in the podcast, you might remember as we looked at the story of Genesis, we, we explored how God had created everyone for companionship and how we were created to have a relationship with God, a, a healthy relationship with ourselves, a healthy relationship with other people, and a healthy relationship with all of creation. He talks about the animals and the plants and the dirt and all this sort of stuff. But then sin entered the world, and sin separates and alienates. This is what we talked about. So sin separates or hurts or alienates all of these areas. It, it separates us from God. It separates us from our ourselves as shame entered the world. It separates us from other people. That's a no-brainer. All the conflict and tension and separation we experience in our relationships um, and with creation, the way in which we relate to creation. There's this war now in between us. And so sin hurts all of these areas of our lives. So then here's salvation. Salvation then is when through Jesus, all of these things are made new. And we can be in a right relationship with God, and we can be in a right relationship with ourselves and with other people and with all creation. So if you want to learn how to do that, if you want to learn how to be saved and experience reconciliation in all of these areas of your lives, then Scripture is super helpful. Because that's why it was written. If you want to bake a cake, not as helpful. Not nearly as helpful. I hear there is a recipe for Ezekiel bread or something like that. So helpful for that. It's very dense. You can get it. It's in the fridge section. Um, not sure I've had it, but I, I think it's a recipe in the Bible. Um, if you want to have something simple and easy to understand, or if you want to get those five easy lessons on how to have a, have a happier life, I'm going to suggest not a great book for you. If you want a science textbook, probably not a great book for you. If you want a book that clearly distinguishes between history and metaphor and fiction and nonfiction and that doesn't include a blend of parables alongside poems and history and legend, if, if you don't want the kind of complexity that exists in any kind of library, which is what the Bible is, is a library of books, then this isn't a good book for you. But if you want to be saved, great book. If you experience sin that's separating you from God, from yourself, from other people, from creation, and you're like, I want to experience resurrection life, I want to be reconciled, then I'm telling you, friends, you can dig into this book, and God will use it to transform you in profound ways. Profound ways. If you want to defend yourself, if you want to argue, if you read the rest of 2 Timothy, it's really great. It's so ironic because I feel like this verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, is often used in the context of an argument. Maybe it's just me. If it's not you, God bless you. But it's often used in the context of an argument. But if you read the rest of the book, he tells Timothy over and over again, don't get into senseless arguments with people over and over again. He's like, don't do it. What does it say? That's not the point. Salvation. That's the goal. Right relationship in all areas of our lives. That's the goal. Scripture is really useful. And it's going to accomplish this goal like this. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, we're finally to the verse that started all of this. Here's how it's going to accomplish the salvation. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to be made new, then all of Scripture... This verse was specifically talking about the Hebrew Bible, 
but we now kind of know, based on the context of the New Testament, that the New Testament was clearly, you know, kind of forwardly included. If it, we won't get that, we won't go down that road. But it's talking about the Old Testament, and now we look at it as all of Scripture, including the, the New Testament. And he's saying it's super useful. And it's useful in four ways. This could be its own sermon series. I'm not saying that it will be, but it could be. I'm just going to cover it really quickly, these four words that it's useful for. I encourage you, if you're writing something down, to write these down. Here's, here's what they are. Uh, first, it's useful, uh, it's good for teaching. In other words, you, you're bound to learn something new. There's, the scripture is going to teach you something. I've been studying it for a long time. I learn stuff new all the time about God, about the human condition, all kinds of stuff. Second, it's useful for rebuking. That's kind of a heavy word. We don't like that word. Here's what it really means. The Greek um, actually is speaking about what it means to bring something into the light. So scripture is really useful for showing us our blind spots. It's useful for showing us those things that we'd rather not see. And it's, that's the idea of rebuking somebody is like, hey, you don't notice this. That's a harsh word in English, but in the Greek, it just meant, you know, bringing something into the light. And it's really useful for that. Third, it's useful for correcting. The word here, think a chiropractic. They still kind of use that. They're correcting you, right? So what it means is, in the Greek, is to straighten something that's crooked. So there's something that's supposed to be straight, got out of whack, and Scripture's really great for straightening it back out bringing you back into alignment, alignment with your relationship with God, with other people, with yourself, with creation. You're able to correct or get that into alignment. And then finally, it's useful for training. I love this word because the Greek word for Hebrew, uh, for training is uh, the root word of it is just child. And what it means here is to uh, child someone, to raise them. So the idea of like helping someone who is a child and helping them grow and become an adult. Scripture's really useful for helping us become more mature. Those are the four ways that it's useful according to uh, Paul. And it's useful in those four ways because it's God-breathed. It's God-breathed. Now, if you've been following this series, then you know exactly what this phrase means. In fact, I would suggest to you that the only way to know what this phrase means is to do the study that we've been doing in this series. This particular Greek word is a compound word. Paul made it up. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible. It's not found anywhere else in classical Greek literature. It's just this funny word. Paul's like, Scripture's God-breathed. He took God and breathed and made a compound word, and it's like his, it's, it's like his contribution to, you know, to classical Greek. You know, like he, that's his word, and no one else decided to use it, which would have been disappointing to Paul, I think. You know? But it's not found anywhere else. So the only real way to kind of understand what does it mean for Scripture to be God-breathed is to say, okay, well, what is God's breath doing elsewhere? Because he's clearly referencing something that we should know, especially creating a new word. And we know what God's breath does elsewhere because we studied it recently. Week one, God created the first human out of the dirt, like a potter in the clay. And then he breathed, the breath of God animated him and, and made him come alive. Week two, God put the dead back together and put these bones back together. And, and the breath of God then animated it. So based on that, we know exactly what God's breath does in Scripture. God guided the writing and pulling together of all of these words, right? Forming it even from the dirt and clay of our human experience into these books, into these genres, into the library of the Old and New Testament. And then God animates it. It becomes alive. Or as Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active. Think about the previous two weeks. Without the breath of God, Adam would have been nothing but a lump of clay. Without the breath of God, the valley of dry bones would have been nothing but a collection of skeletons. And so without the breath of God, I suggest the scripture would be just another book. But because of the breath of God, it's alive 
and it's active, which means to really benefit from Scripture, you can't just read it like another book. Now, it's possible, and I'm speaking from personal experience, to read it like just any other book. It's possible to do historical analysis, to study its context and word origin. I enjoy doing all of that. I've spent way too much time in the library trying to translate Greek and all. You can study it just like Beowulf or the Odyssey. You can, just, you can study it just like any other book. But because it's God-breathed, if you really want its full intent, you can't just always do it like that. Because it comes alive through God's breath, God's spirit. Which means it can speak to us in profound ways that teach us, correct us, expose us, and train us. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 to 14, and, and let me just add that these are one, this is probably one of those passages where Peter was like, man, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, so we'll put one up. This is what we speak, not in words taught, by, uh, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Here's the point. The breath of God, the Spirit of God in us is an essential ingredient to understand what God wants us to understand in Scripture and in the world. And without the Spirit, you're going to miss the point. There's still a lot you can learn from Scripture without relying on the Holy Spirit. There's just, there's some really, like, love your enemy. You don't even, the Holy Spirit, you know, like, that's just really good. That's profound. But the overarching story, interpretation of Scripture, you're going to miss it without the Spirit. In fact, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he said this in John 16, 12. He says, I have much to say to you, uh, more than you can bear now, which was so interesting. He's like, disciples, I've been teaching for three years. I have so much more I want you to know, but you're not, you can't handle it. You know, they they weren't mature enough, right? So he's like this becoming like an adult from a child. They're not mature enough. And I love to tell you that um, uh, he, he goes on and he says, you know, um, you, can't, you can't bear it now. So here's what he has to say. The next verse, he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, there's so much more I'd like to teach you, so you just have to wait for the book to come out. Not what he says. No, central to the early church was the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary people, including the ability to teach us, to lead us into all truth. God's breath would teach them as he animates scripture. Today, in American Christianity, I, I know many people who think of it like this. They'll say, well, the Bible's my authority, and because the Bible says there is a Holy Spirit, I guess I believe there's a Holy Spirit. In the early church, it was actually flipped. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit impacted, like, I'm, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've experienced the Holy Spirit, and the, whole, the Holy Spirit wants me to study the Bible? Okay, I'm studying it. That was the experience of the early church. Now, Of course, this presents a new problem, doesn't it, when it comes to authority? How then can we know that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul would say, you can know because you'll see the fruit of the Spirit, which are things like love, patience, kindness. So you'll tell that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit because of their character. And we've gone full circle. So here's what we're left with. The Holy Spirit... The character of the individual interacting with Scripture, their intent, their motive, their 
you know, where they stand with God, all of these types of things, their character. Um, I'm not talking about someone being perfect or holy, uh, having everything figured out. I, I certainly don't. But their, their willingness to be humble and to confess their sins and to be transparent and to strive. Like, what is, their, what is their intent? Where are they headed? So the Holy Spirit, character, and Scripture all kind of interacting with each other. And um, uh, so th- what's interesting is you've got Scripture. Scripture is really useful for building your character, Right? And uh, our character is essential for being able to teach other people Scripture. And our character, of course, our patience, our love, our kindness, is how we'll know that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And then that same Spirit is what makes Scripture come alive. And Scripture, of course, is God-breathed. Like us, we're God-breathed as well, remember? We studied that passage. And then God's Spirit is what not only gives us life at creation, but teaches us all things and helps us understand Scripture. And this, my friends, is a lot more messy um, than simply saying that the Bible says it, I believe in, and that's good enough. But I'm suggesting to you, and you can test for yourself, this is what the Bible says. And you can decide for yourself whether I'm a trustworthy teacher. And uh, as my professor often said, I, I only get about 70% of it right, and I'm not, but I'm not sure which 30% I got wrong, so you just have to figure that out. I'm going to invite uh, the band to come back up. Next week, we're going to spend some more time uh, talking about what it means to rely on the Holy Spirit. That's where the breath of God is headed. Uh, poured out in a profound way in the, the early church, and I believe is still uh, alive with us today, that the Holy Spirit wants to have this personal relationship and is able to empower us. We're not a very charismatic Pentecostal church. They, they kind of really focus on the Holy Spirit. But we're going to take a Sunday, and we're going to spend some time talking about what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to actually be alive and at work uh, in our lives. Uh, but today, I want you to just spend some time moving us in that direction. Spend some time reflecting on your life. As you think about your character, what are those areas in your lives where you need to be a little bit more transparent? Where you need to be a little bit more honest about what's going on with somebody? What are those areas where you kind of hope that you could use some correcting, some rebuking, some alignment issues in your life or in your relationship with God, other people? But also talk about what, what is your relationship with Scripture? Are you reading it these days? Have you ever read it? What would it look like to just take some time and make a commitment to spend some time in scripture on a regular basis to lay aside you know and I I, there are people in our community that have a lot of baggage around scripture and and so I just invite you to just lay some of that aside to enter in and allow the Holy Spirit don't try to do it on your own just ask God to speak through you uh, to speak through him as you encounter scripture and then also how are you and the Holy Spirit doing have you have you regularly recognized that God's spirit is in all places at all times and able to comfort and teach and to work in your life. I'll give you just a few moments to kind of sit with this, to wrestle with it, and then I'm going to pray. So let's just move into just a few moments of reflection. God, come and meet us in this place. Holy Spirit, come and use your word to cut through bone and marrow, to perform surgery on our hearts and to correct what is out of alignment, to bring new life, to bring comfort where there is sorrow, to bring discomfort where there is sin. 
Holy Spirit, we trust that you are God and that we follow you. That you are here and that you have made yourself known to us. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.